Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all, to feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Welcome to Western Civ, episode 229, Ottoman Menace. Last time, Suleiman the Magnificent came to the throne and immediately threw himself at the West. Before two years were out, Belgrade and Rhodes were both in Ottoman hands. Suleiman marshaled Ottoman artillery superiority to quickly expand his borders on all sides. Charles V and the rest of Europe sat, paralyzed. Charles and Francis were at each other's throats, as we already know. Henry was too far away and too preoccupied with his own unraveling heir situation to do anything. The Pope might scream into the wind, but no one outside Hungary was going to do anything to shore up Europe's rapidly collapsing borders. This week, Suleiman continues his expansion as Europe searches for answers. While Suleiman might have wished to focus all his efforts and energies on expansion, back in Egypt things were not well. A series of revolts in early 1524 failed. But one latter managed to collect enough followers that the Janissaries had to be sent in to bring the leader down. Still, the constant discontent in Egypt, fanned by popular dismay, was troubling. Suleiman decided enough was enough and determined to send in his grand vizier, Ibrahim Pasha, to deal with the situation. He was the only man Suleiman felt had the skills and who could be trusted to bring the situation to heel. And Suleiman wanted to make absolutely sure Ibrahim succeeded. To that end, he sent his grand vizier with 2,000 foot soldiers and 500 janissaries. Suleiman outfitted Ibrahim's contingent, wished him well, and told him he had one year to clean up the situation. The goal, first and foremost, was to awe the people of Egypt into submission. Everything had been planned to give the population a striking image of the new rulers who had taken over for the Mamluks, who would have been the only rulers Egypt had known for centuries. Ibrahim made quick work of the situation, just as Suleiman had hoped. He identified any rebellious local chiefs and had them decapitated. Anyone who could report an injustice was compelled to come forward, and Ibrahim did his best to solve their grievances. 
even releasing hundreds from debtors' prison who were there unjustly. He drew up new regulations concerning everything from taxation to the price of sugar. For the first time, a system of checks and balances was instituted between the governor, local officials, the Janissaries, and the Arab tribes. Thanks to this system, graft and corruption dropped dramatically, and Egypt and Syria remained secure and free from rebellion until the 19th century. Not too shabby at all. Meanwhile, back in Istanbul, Suleiman was dealing with domestic issues of his own. While on an extended hunting trip to Edirne, a rumor began to circulate that the Sultan had no major campaigns planned for the near future. The Janissaries, accustomed to easy spoils to supplement their income, revolted when they heard the news. Suleiman was forced to hurry back to the capital, where he brutally suppressed the revolt. He ultimately killed three of the ringleaders with his own hands before the rest fell back into line. The Janissaries absolutely could make or break a sultan's reign. If the sultan failed to keep them in line, then his reign was going to be fraught with peril. Suleiman had no interest in going down that road. He was going to make it clear to his elite warriors that he was the sultan and they were not. Period. And it worked. During the entire rest of his reign, the Janissaries never again revolted against his authority. But Suleiman also made it clear that he was far from done when it came to conquests. The only real question was which direction to strike next. In Iran, Shah Tasma had just succeeded his father Ismail, who had tangled with Selim so many times before. Upon hearing of the new Shah's ascension, Suleiman sent a letter. The letter, while technically a congratulation, is acidic in its tone. At the moment, many believe that Iran was sure to be Suleiman's next target. However, throughout the winter of 1525-1526, while preparations for war continued unabated, the great sultan remained silent about his target. Certainly, his religious obligations made another attack on the West likely. His rivals, according to many, were the rulers of Europe, the Christians, men like Charles V and Francis I, not the leaders and Shah of Iran. In the end, Europe would be his target once again. Before setting out on campaign, Suleiman checked all the usual boxes. He made sure to get all the other major powers in the region and strike peace deals with them so that he didn't have to fight on more than one front. Now, technically, Charles V and Shah Tamspa were in fact plotting to ally themselves against Suleiman. But Iran was far too weak at this point to do anything against the Ottoman state, so it wasn't a real threat. With peace treaties in tow, Suleiman was ready to march. This time, the target would be the city of Buda on the Danube. If Suleiman took it, 
then all of the Hungarian plain would be open to him. Poland would be in jeopardy as well. Yet, as we will see, once again Europe would fail to join in any concerted effort to stave off the disaster that was coming. On Monday, April the 21st, 1526, Suleiman left Istanbul at the head of an army that numbered 100,000 men and 300 cannons. The army followed the river and valleys northwest to Belgrade. Storms and heavy rains made the journey difficult. Many bridges were simply swept away the moment Suleiman's engineers erected them. Yet onward rumbled the great host. Once they reached Belgrade, the army followed the course of the Danube to Buda. When the army reached Esk, modern-day Oisk, in modern-day Croatia, Suleiman had a massive bridge erected over the river, 322 meters long and 2.4 meters wide. Then the moment his army crossed the bridge, Suleiman had it torched. There would be no thought of retreat. From there, the army reached the Mohawk Plain, where the king of Hungary, Louis II, was waiting to cut off the road to Buda. Louis, as expected, had sent out all the usual pleas for support from the crowned heads of Europe. Louis, as expected, was disappointed. Not only did none of the great European powers send him any aid, but to top it off, many of his own vassals decided to stay home. The king of Croatia, for example, technically owed his allegiance to Louis, but didn't bring his contingent of 40,000 men. All the warning signs were there for a catastrophic defeat. And that is precisely what happened. The 30,000 Hungarian troops now faced a force of nearly twice their size across the field at Mohawks. Making matters worse, the man in charge of the Hungarian army, the Bishop of Kalska, had supreme confidence in his Hungarian cavalry, his badly outnumbered Hungarian cavalry. Said cavalry toss would have looked like your standard medieval group of knights. Clad head to toe in steel, they would have cut an imposing figure, especially as a group. Unfortunately, what the good bishop was forgetting was that the Hungarian cavalry had faced the lighter, faster Ottoman cavalry on battlefields before and had nearly always lost. Plus, and this is a big one, said Bishop also forgot about the artillery. Namely, that Suleiman had a lot of it and he had none. The night before the battle, Suleiman held a conference of war. It was August the 2nd, 1526. The council agreed that they should not engage the Hungarian cavalry at all. Rather, it would be wiser to just let the Christian knights ride straight through a gap opened up in the lines and then attack them on the flanks. It was a brilliant decision that both negated their enemy's strength and turned it into a weakness. On August the 3rd at about 3 in the afternoon, the battle began. 
Suleiman opened up with a volley from his guns. The Hungarians, lacking any artillery, responded by launching their cavalry charge, as expected. As planned, the Hungarians tore through the skirmishers at the front of the line, but then the main Ottoman battle line simply swung open like a barn door, and the Hungarians thundered harmlessly through. The Ottomans then sprang the trap as the troops on both sides of the Hungarians attacked, catching the knights in a pincer move. The Hungarians' knights fought valiantly, but to no avail. A group of around 22 of them came very close to reaching Suleiman himself at the center of the line, but then the Janissaries drove them back. As the knights were pushed back, all the Ottoman guns opened at once. What Hungarian knights survived the initial attack were cut to ribbons. The combat continued like this until the evening. The Hungarian cavalry, heroic but ill-disciplined, had failed to turn the tide. The Ottoman guns, on the other hand, most certainly had. The Hungarian lines ultimately broke and fled. Many men became stuck in the mud and they were finished off as they tried to run. But by the time the battle ended, it was too late in the evening for Suleiman to consider pursuing his foe. Instead, they camped on the battlefield where the Ottoman ministers steadily created a pyramid of 2,000 decapitated Hungarian heads, including those of seven bishops. Some historians put the number of Hungarian dead at 30,000, which would have been about 75% of their total strength and is therefore much too high. But their cavalry losses of 4,000 are probably about right. King Louis himself drowned while escaping. It was a crushing defeat that Hungary would take several centuries to recover from. Suleiman advanced to the Hungarian capital of Buda after the victory, entering the city on September the 11th, 1526. What he found there would have tantalized any Renaissance prince. The last great Hungarian king, Michael Corvinus, had been a generous patron of the arts and an avid collector of Italian artifacts. His library was the greatest in all of Europe. Now the Ottomans carted it all back to Istanbul. Book by book, gilded candlestick by gilded candlestick, they rumbled on carts to the Ottoman capital. Hungarian nobles came in droves to surrender to Suleiman. His victory at Mohawks had an immense impact in Europe. Again, no one had come to King Louis's aid, but everyone was nevertheless distressed by the result. Hugh, audible sigh. Both Catholics and the growing Protestant movement saw the battle as a sign of divine providence, punishing Christians, depending on which side you were on, for their sins. But Europe had bigger issues that were the direct result of Mohawks compared to the usual blame sharing and apportioning. As I mentioned, King Louis died immediately after the battle. Now, luckily for him, he had an infant son, John Sigismund. However, he was not the only claimant to the throne. Ferdinand, brother to Charles V, also put forth his claim. As the Hungarian nobility was divided over whether to support King Louis, 
at Mohawks. They were equally divided as to who to support for king now. Interestingly, the Hungarian nobility threw everyone a curveball and elected not candidate A, not candidate B, but candidate C. Candidate C was John Zapolyai, the quote-unquote ruler of Transylvania. By marriage, Zapolyai was closely tied to the royal house of Poland. The Hungarian nobility really did not want an infant king or a regency. But nor did they want a powerful absentee Habsburg lord. The Hungarian nobility preferred someone less powerful that they could ostensibly dominate. And Zapolyai fit the bill. Ferdinand ignored the Hungarians, went ahead and had himself elected king. Thus, Hungary now had two kings. Most of Europe, other than Charles V, supported Zapolyai fearing that the Habsburgs were now too dominant. Nevertheless, Ferdinand promptly defeated his rival in battle, and Zapolyai was forced to flee to Poland. Francis I was too impoverished to give him any aid. There was no one else left to help him. No one, except Suleiman, of course. Thus, at the end of December 1527, Zapulyai's envoys dutifully appeared in Istanbul. They arrived with trunks laden with gold and other precious metals, and spent the next several weeks bribing anyone and everyone who claimed to be able to get them an audience with the Sultan. At last, Suleiman agreed to meet with them. Before the envoys could even open their mouths, Suleiman announced his decision. He had already decided that Zapolyai would be the next king of Hungary. Zuleiman vastly preferred a weak local ruler compared to an aggressive and powerful Habsburg who he might have to deal with for years on end. On February 28, 1528, the Ottomans and Zapolyai signed a treaty, the former promising to provide the latter, with 50 cannons and over 500 pounds of gunpowder for the upcoming campaign. Meanwhile, back in Buda, word reached Ferdinand of Zapolyai's success. It did not take him long to panic. Ferdinand hurriedly dispatched his own ambassadors to Istanbul, but they were far less skillful, came with far fewer bribes, and were far too late to do any good. Moreover, they were proud and arrogant. The Habsburg envoys bluntly told Suleiman that Hungary belonged to Ferdinand by right, a fact that he, the sultan, should just recognize and get on with it. Fuming, Suleiman reminded the envoys that he had won the kingdom of Hungary at Mohawks and Ferdinand had not. Post-Mohawks, Suleiman approached Hungary completely differently. He firmly believed that he had won the kingdom by right of conquest. Now, for the moment, he didn't feel inclined to incorporate the kingdom into the Ottoman Empire as a province. But he did resent Habsburg claims to sovereignty over something he felt like they had done nothing to obtain. He informed the representatives of this and then imprisoned them for nine months. When he released them, he gave each 200 ducats for their trouble, 
and sent them back to Buddha with a message. If Ferdinand wanted to know what kind of neighbor he had to the south, he was about to find out. All the while, Suleiman and his viziers worked to prepare their armies for war. In truth, what they hoped was going to happen was that they could meet Charles V, whom Suleiman saw as his only true rival in Europe, on the field of battle and defeat him. But in reality, there was very little chance of that ever happening. Charles ceded the duchies of Tyrol, Carinthia, Styria, Carinialia, and Austria to his brother for a reason. Charles believed the eastern frontier was his brother's problem. Charles would deal with the rest of Europe. In fact, only once in Charles's 44-year reign did he ever visit Vienna. In May of 1529, Suleiman again marched north at the head of an army. It was the third time in eight years he had done so. On May 10th, the expedition left Istanbul, this time intent on driving directly to Vienna. First, Suleiman had to retake Buda, which was presently held by Ferdinand's supporters. The siege only lasted six days this time. After a main gate fell on day five, the city capitulated and spared itself a brutal sacking. This time, Suleiman held his janissaries in check. One week later, John Zapuliai was installed on the throne of Hungary. As fall approached, Suleiman commanded his men to make immediately for Vienna. His intention was to take the city before the winter weather set in, making any movement impossible. The distance between Buda and Vienna was relatively short. On September 27, 1528, the 120,000 men of the Ottoman army reached the walls of the city. Within was a garrison of only 20,000 men plus 27 cannons. Neither Charles V nor his brother Ferdinand were on hand. Instead, the city was defended by Philip the Palatine of Bavaria. This time, the whole of Christian Europe fully comprehended the danger. Charles V commanded his subjects, Catholic and Protestant, to aid his brother in the defense of a city that sat at the heart of Central Europe. Fortunately for him, Luther also understood the enormity of the situation, and the German Protestants agreed to fight. Fortunately for those within the walls, the poor weather which had slowed Suleiman's progress to Buddha gave them time. They used it wisely. All of Vienna's walls had been repaired. Munitions and food were fully stocked, and all but one of Vienna's gates were blocked up with rubble. The siege began with the usual atrocities. Beheadings, acts of treason, arguable acts of heroism, etc., etc. On October the 7th, 800 imperial troops tried to catch an Ottoman unit in the rear by surprise. It did not work, and only 300 Europeans survived. The other 500 heads were piled up as a trophy outside the walls. By then, the Ottomans were mere inches from breaking into the city. For three successive days, 
The Ottoman guns pounded away at the walls. After three days, a breach opened up. But for whatever reason, the Ottomans did not see the initiative. By now, the bad weather had arrived. Late summer had turned to autumn. Munitions were running low. The Janissaries had started to complain. So Suleiman held a council of war. From that council, it was decided that the Ottomans would launch one final assault before retreating. On October 14th, three Ottoman columns advanced and threw themselves furiously at three predetermined weak points. It came to nothing. The troops rested and launched another round of attacks that afternoon. But every attempt was blocked by the seemingly unshakable resolve of the defenders. The sudden attack was a failure. Vienna would not fall after all. The siege had to be lifted. Disappointed, Suleiman gave the order to depart for Istanbul. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Two months after he decided to lift the siege of Vienna, a rain and snow-covered Suleiman re-entered Istanbul. It had been a difficult journey back over flooded roads. Many animals and men had died. More than anything else, weather and timing thwarted Suleiman's efforts to take Vienna. This would be a constant problem for the Ottomans throughout the 16th century, by the way. Rainfall, we know from climate data, was extremely high throughout the Central and Eastern Europe in the first half of the 16th century. Traveling large distances was very hard, to say the least. A campaign lasting a whole year was absolutely unthinkable. So really, for several centuries, it was its climate and distance from Istanbul, more than the prowess of its defenders, that saved Central Europe from the Turks. Suleiman was now 35 years old. Despite the minor setback at Vienna, the Ottoman Empire remained at its peak, and the Sultan at the height of his glory. In 1530, Suleiman had two important intimates, his Grand Vizier Ibrahim Pasha, and one of his wives, Hurem Sultan, or, as she's better known in Europe, Roxlane. We know very little about Roxlane's early life. Certainly, she was European. There's an old tradition that she was the daughter of a poor Polish priest, who was captured by Tartars during one of their frequent raiding expeditions and given as a present to Suleiman. 
This story, however, cannot be confirmed. The nickname Europeans knew her by, Roxlane, just means, quote, the Russian woman. So again, we know that she was European. Roxlane started to influence Suleiman before her marriage and continued to do so right up unto her death. Her effect on him, though, might be exaggerated. Suleiman was far from feeble and always took responsibility for his actions. The biggest reason we need to know about Roxlane is that she was bitterly opposed to the Grand Vizier, Ibrahim Pasha. She normally took the opposite side of whatever he argued for. For example, in 1537, when Ibrahim would want peace with Venice, Roxlane argued for war. As Suleiman reached middle age, he remained very youthful in appearance, sort of the anti-Henry VIII. He was thin and rather frail, but very strong, and, quote, he is said to be capable of bending the tightest bow, end quote. As he aged, Suleiman also began to take his religious duties more seriously. That tends to be a trope, I suppose, for most kings and queens and princes during this early modern age. Technically, Suleiman was the quote-unquote supreme Ghazi, the replacement for the last great caliphs, the Abbasids, who had been God's undisputed lieutenants on earth. His duty was to defend and expand Islam. And for really the first time since the late 8th and early 9th centuries, the empire of Islam was expanding in a major way. Of course, sincerely religious, Suleiman was convinced throughout his life that God was on his side. Interestingly liberal when it came to non-Muslims, Suleiman had no tolerance for the Shiite heretics of Iran. He didn't go as far as his father Selim, who reportedly massacred 40,000 Shiites, but he unequivocally condemned their supporters. He had nothing but disdain for the Shah of Iran. Don't get me wrong, though, Suleiman was not a fanatic. His decisions were not driven by religious ideology. He expanded into the Balkans because it was in his interests to do so. This was never a crusade. He showed significant tolerance towards, quote, the peoples of the book, end quote, so long as they didn't take up arms against the Muslims. The Ottoman Empire guaranteed the lives, liberty, and property of religious minorities, and Suleiman respected these rights with ferocity. Suleiman was guided his whole life by religion, just not fanaticism. Interestingly, while in the West, Suleiman is known really only as a great conqueror, in his own lands he was known quite differently. He was called Kanuni, or lawgiver. He followed a celebrated Near Eastern saying called the Circle of Equity that went as follows, quote, No state without an army, no army without money, no money without contented subjects, no subjects without justice, without justice, no state. In an Islamic state, the Sultan was the defender of holy law. Based on the Quran and the traditions of Muhammad, this idea had been codified into law in the 8th century. Moreover, as Sultan, Suleiman also possessed a right of interpretation. I guess one way to think of it is that Suleiman was in essence both the king and the pope, sort of what Henry VIII aspired to be. 
The difference was Suleiman was stepping into a long-established tradition while Henry was trying to create his. Suleiman had an elevated sense of justice. And of this, all his contemporaries, both Muslim and Christian, agree. One Frenchman spoke of, quote, his humanity, justice, and fidelity. Suleiman and the legal expert who worked with him, Ibusud, faced a truly enormous reforming task. The Ottoman Empire stretched from the Tigris River all the way to the Danube, reforming a law code that covered hundreds of different ethnicities, all with their own legal traditions, certainly was not going to be easy. What they did to solve this problem was positively Herculean. Recognizing that each part of the empire had its own laws at one point, Suleiman made no attempt to stitch them together. Instead, he decided he would give each province its own legal code. On top of these independent provincial legal codes, Suleiman issued a sort of grand law code called the Kanuni i Hukuk, which was a series of laws that applied everywhere. For those living in the United States, this is essentially the system we use today, with different state legal codes superseded and overlapping with a larger federal one. In terms of political control, it's important to remember that the Sultan was an absolute monarch. Suleiman delegated a lot of authority to his governors in the various provinces, but they were his powers to delegate. He was, at the end of the day, the fount of all justice and the source of all power. In fact, one of Suleiman's chief concerns was to keep tabs on his governors. He understood that corrupt officials created breeding grounds for sedition and rebellion. Suleiman was desperate to make sure that his governors never exceeded their mandate. He wrote, quote, No one has the right to exercise authority over land or population without the express mandate of the Sultan. No one can exact taxes greater than those officially decided upon, nor forced labor and fines that have not been fixed by law. End quote. In other words, Suleiman wrote, the law that the governors had administered, they were also bound to, just like everybody else. The law also protected the common people from stakeholders who might try to exploit them. The shopkeepers, speculators, agitators, and thieves. In most cases, Suleiman fixed fines as penalties. Judges and rudimentary police officers had to enforce those penalties. No more, no less. If they did not, then they themselves would be liable for punishment. Some of these fines were steep. If you stole a donkey, a horse, or an ox, you either got your hand cut off, or you paid a fine of 200 aki, the chief currency of the Ottoman Empire, a coin made of pure silver. If you snatched off a Muslim's turban in an angry movement, you'd be fined one aki. Now, day-to-day -day legal judgments in Istanbul, as in the provinces, were the concern of the Qadi, who were judges and legal experts. These had attended what we would call law school and what the Ottomans called a madrasi. 
Unlike the leading administrators in most of the army, the Qadi had to be Muslim by birth. The law school they attended had a very lengthy course of study, somewhere between 15 and 20 years. There was also a sort of supreme court in the Ottoman Empire, but in this case it was one man. This was the Qadi of Istanbul, who was sort of like chief judge of the empire. Below him were all the judges of the chief towns, about 200 throughout Asia and 30 in Egypt, just to give you a sense. Below them were the naib, judges of districts, villages, and smaller towns, who went to law school as well, but for a much shorter period of time. If you went to court, you'd be seen by one single judge. There were no panels. Despite some inevitable abuses in an empire of such great size, justice under Suleiman functioned very efficiently. Europeans, for example, were astounded by the efficiency and rapidity of the system. Guillaume Postel, who visited the empire twice between 1535 and 1550, spoke of this on several occasions. He praised the speed and honesty of the Turkish justice system compared to the immorality and corruption of French tribunals. A Frenchman from Marseille, who visited Turkey in 1579, was astonished that, quote, the Christian and the Jew are as free as the Turk to put forward the least complaint without needing the eloquence of a lawyer to defend the truth. Being far less partisan, the administration of justice is also carried out more honestly, end quote. After the capture of Constantinople back in 1453, most Ottoman sultans decided to actively emulate what had once been the grandeur of the Byzantine court. Suleiman was no exception. The celebrations he held were intended to dazzle, and they worked. Many foreign ambassadors left accounts of their presentation to the great sultan and their corresponding amazement at what they saw. Here's one of the most striking descriptions. Quote, the sultan was sitting on a very low couch covered in carpets and cushions of exquisite workmanship. His bow and arrows were just next to him. Chamberlains held our arms of precaution which hadn't been established when a Croat, who wished to avenge the death of his master, the Serbian tyrant, had asked for an audience with Murad in order to assassinate him. We gestured to kiss his hand and were led along a wall which faced his seat, being careful never to turn our back on him. There were high-ranking officers, troops of the Imperial Guard, Sifai and Janissaries in the room. Look now at the immense sea of turbans with countless folds of the whitest silk, the bright clothes of every kind and color, and everywhere the glitter of gold, silver, silk, and satin. Words cannot give a clear impression of that strange spectacle. I've never seen a more beautiful ceremony. What most struck me about the crowd was its silence and discipline. The Janissaries lined up apart from the other troops. They were so still that I wondered if they were soldiers or statues until I greeted them, as I had been advised. And they all bowed their hands to me. Suleiman was passionately interested in things which sparkled and flashed in the light. He always made sure his clothing was embroidered with precious stones and gold. All of our sources are unanimous that no sultan before Suleiman cared quite so much about his appearance. While Suleiman always saw the Christian West as the biggest threat to his Islamic state, he was not about to ignore Safavid Iran. He still considered them to be heretics, and while perhaps not as invested in their destruction as his father had been, by no means does that suggest he was going to leave them alone. Iran was a bit of a mess in the early 1530s. The Shah, Tamsp, was still an adolescent, and competing factions in the kingdom had torn it apart. 
While this was generally good news for the Ottomans, it led to some instability along their eastern border. In 1533, the Kurdish Emir of Bitlis, west of Lake Van, defected to the Shah of Iran. Suleiman was not about to let this happen. So in 1534, he dispatched his trusted vizier, Ibrahim Pasha, to set the affairs right again. By the time that Ibrahim arrived with his army, Bitlis was already back in Ottoman hands. However, Ibrahim now had an army at his back, and Iran remained in disarray, so he decided to press his luck. By the summer of 1534, Ibrahim had taken Shah Tamspa's capital of Tabriz. Two months later, he reached Baghdad, which promptly surrendered. This was a massive boon to Suleiman. Baghdad was one of the most ancient cities of Islam. It had been the seat of the most powerful caliph, as the Muslim world had ever known the Abbasids. Now it was in Ottoman hands. This allowed Suleiman and subsequent sultans to stress that they were the true defenders of the faith. They were the true descendants of the Prophet. After all, the Ottomans now controlled Baghdad, Mecca, and Jerusalem. They controlled the Muslim world. Suleiman was quick to have his temporal right to rule the city confirmed by legal fiat. Baghdad became the capital of a new Ottoman province with its own legal code. Suleiman went to great lengths to eliminate many of the onerous Safavid taxes, as if to say, hey look, we're the good guys here. What the people in Baghdad thought at the time is impossible to say, but the lack of rebellion is telling. I'm going to end the story there for today because 1534 is a good stopping point. Next week, Suleiman keeps up his pressure on the West while internal conflict forces him to make a difficult choice. If you'd like more content, check out the website, westernsibpodcast.com. If you're interested in ad-free versions of the show, you can get those for $1 a month at patreon.com forward slash westernsibpodcast. And if you're interested, check out a free trial, Western Civ 2.0, bigger, better, and more fun. That link is also in the show notes. Seven-day free trial at www.glow.fm forward slash Western Civ. Round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.